walked on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. We just crushed their face. Hello, and welcome to a special pop-up edition of the Damn Good Podcast. I am Seth Emerson. Over there, once again, is not Jeff Schultz or Rennie Curran. Over there is a special guest, not Todd Munkin, but someone who knows him well. Greg, please introduce yourself. Yeah, happy to be on. This is Greg Allman. I cover the Bucks for The Athletic down in Tampa. I uh, was lucky enough to have Todd Munkin for his three years here on Dirk Cutter's staff. Uh, and miss him, man. Miss the candor. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we'll miss, as we were talking about before we went on the air, we'll miss talking to Todd until probably August, but that's a whole other subject. But So the, the thinking here is that I, I have this big story I did on Todd Munkin on Sunday that ran on The Athletic. Please go and read it if, if you haven't already, although the analytics show me that a lot of you have already, so that's good. Um, but when... Todd Munkin first got connected to Georgia and it looked like it really was going to happen. One of the benefits of working for the empire that is the athletic now is we've got this vast, you know, just list of people that we can reach out to um, that have covered him. And one of them was Greg, who you covered Todd with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from 2016 to 2018. And you were very helpful in giving me a lot of background on Todd, used a lot of it in this story. Um, obviously, if you read the story, I talked to Dirk Cutter. I talked to Brandon Whedon. I talked to Mel Tucker, who worked for him briefly. I talked to John Lilly, who worked with Todd Munkin this past year in Cleveland and sat next to him on the team plane on road trips. Um, I talked to his athletic director, who you helped get me in touch with him, um, his athletic director at Southern Miss, who's now at San Diego. Small world, by the way, Greg, that you know the guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, t- yeah. Totally. Um, so the the picture that emerged of Todd Munkin is a guy that's smart, likable. Um, I was struck, and I put this in the story, I was struck by the amount of people that, like, were very happy to return calls. Greg and I, we, we've been in this business long enough where you sometimes get a, a sense of people by certain people don't want to talk to you about them. <laughs> you know, you don't get callbacks. Um, and, right. We did, if I was just talking to somebody about that. Somebody did an Andy Reid oral history and again just i'm always impressed with those when like if you think about who are the 10 coolest people you could get mm-hmm. for this deal and like you get nine out of ten or you get all ten of them and, and the writer said like literally everyone that you try and get to they're so right. happy to talk about their time with that coach and monks the same way again like you said the people who have worked with him uh have enjoyed working with him would like to do it again and, and usually have fun stories too yeah and I, I don't know that I had as many like fun stories about it. I mean, it was more just kind of introducing Munkin to Georgia fans and let let's yeah. do that. All right. So the the Cliff Notes version of Tom Munkin in Tampa Bay when you covered him was first two years the coordinator, but Dirk Cutter is the play caller. Two thousand eighteen, Cutter turns over play calling duties to Munkin and the offense takes off. Um, but then the whole staff gets let go. Well, whole staff after 2018. I know Cutter was let go, but yeah, no, yeah, because yeah. um, they went five and eleven. That's the Cliff Notes version. Greg, expand a little bit on it, kind of centering on Todd Munkin and his time and your impressions of him in Tampa Bay. Yeah, it was really neat. I mean, it's one of those where, um, like, our uh, again, I feel for you. First of all, you guys are missing out on that Munkin's a good coach, but he's a great quote, and, and that's like I said. It, I would feel trying to think who you'd compare it to in terms of like to have him on the team you cover. 
and to not be able to talk. Ah, to let's not talk. There's been a lot of those over the last four years. Yeah, we? no, right. It's it would be like if you had like a really talented player who was redshirting and they're there, but you can't use them till their full extent. Oh, yes. Um, so Monk was in that really cool position. We get the coordinators once a week in Tampa, typically, at least since I've been on the beat. And, and Munkin was great in that Cutter had this role when when Dirk Cutter came in and was the OC under Lovey Smith. Um, Lovey's a very careful. Um, even-handed, doesn't say a lot too positive or too negative. And Cutter was this awesome foil to that, in that Cutter would be blunt and honest and rude even sometimes, <laughs> but in a great way that made it so easy to quote him. And he'd snip at you and stuff, but he'd snip at his own guys sometimes. When he liked guys, um, you always like those coaches who, when you're writing a feature on somebody, will have very specific personal praise for them. Right. And like I said, Cutter was like that. We get Cutter on Wednesdays, and it was like the highlight of the week because he was so much more insightful and candid than uh, Lovey was. So when Cutter got the head coaching job in 16, there was that initial like, oh, man, now we're not going to have – we're going to get like very careful, homogenized, uh, say the right things Dirk on the podium, and we're not going to have that blunt, wonderful, here's what's really wrong. Oh, my God, how do we not get this right every week? And Munkin jumped right into that role. And was great and was unprintably great sometimes. Um, and just a lot of fun. We'd, we'd be happy to stop with you and talk to you. We did, I think I mentioned this to you, Seth, but we did a, a whole thing in 18 before his last year on on just the catch and like how to catch an NFL pass and the art of catching a ball because the pass was so much a part of, of that cutter, Munkin, and offense here. And I literally went to Munkin because Munkin had been the receivers coach as well as the OC his first two years here. And then he just became the coordinator his last year so we could kind of take on play calling and focus more but just to add i'm like i know you don't do a lot of instruction on how to catch a pass as an nfl receivers coach but pretend that i'm the, the worst receiver you ever had how, how do you what's the right way to catch a pass and he was great i mean it was like having a high school coach in terms of the technique and would hold your hands up and make a triangle my youngest is nine years old now and i i literally was showing him how to do it based on what todd munkin told me in 20 minutes as just a curious hmm. beat writer two years ago. Um, really cool. And again, so good to stay late with guys. Um, I think was well-liked as a coach. I don't know if he was well-liked by all of his receivers in Tampa, um, but most of them really appreciated the time he put into making them better, making them understand what they did in the offense and why they did it. Um, I always like when you have somebody who, is confident enough in the system they work in that they can explain it and literally tell you why we're doing this. And it's like, there's some people that, you know, oh, we don't want to let the defense know what the intention is there or what the misdirection is there. And Munkin was a guy who, who kind of just explained this. This is what we like about this yeah. play and what it's supposed to do is this. And it's going to, ideally you get the safety to kind of bite on this here and this route's going to leave them open and would kind of lay it plain for you. And it was kind of like, well, we, we think we can outsmart the other side enough that we don't even mind explaining it a little bit. So it was, it was nice that he would, pull back the curtain a little bit and, and kind of tell you how it works and how it's supposed what to work. What do you think happened in, in 18 where things took off under him? What, what was the difference 16 and 17 to 18? Was it a ma matter of Fitz magic and that run? It wasn't the whole year, obviously, but what, what, what happened there? Yeah, it was wild. Cause I mean like 18, everybody made a whole big deal this year out of James Winston throwing for 5,000 yards and leading the NFL in passing yards and throwing for 33 touchdowns. But the Bucks threw for more yards and more touchdowns in 18 than they did in 19. It just got obscured because Fitz was in there for like seven of the games. James was in and out. 
So you, you missed that. Like this was an incredibly productive offense, especially a passing offense. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best they've ever really had here. And like 18 was cool and that they had, I think they had four receivers get 700 yards, which is crazy in the NFL. So you had obviously Mike Evans was a Pro Bowl talent, but then had, you know, you had Chris Godwin, who was really emerging that year. You had Adam Humphreys, who was a great slot receiver. And you had an on-again, off-again year for Deshaun Jackson. But, I mean, he had, like, three touchdowns and 175 yards in the first two weeks. So uh, it, it came together really well. And I think what was neat is that as good as it was, throwing for 5,000 yards, throwing for 35 touchdowns, uh, I think Munkin was aware of the fact that they really could have been better. Um, like I think the last time we got him or maybe like the week 17 access, he said that you, that you just had this frustration because like you, you knew they were good, but they could have been absolutely special mm-hmm. um, given the talent they had in the past game. And the fact that that only translated to a five and 11 record and it cost the coaching staff their jobs was definitely a disappointment. for them. The offense itself. What, what did you see? There, there's been such a lot of, melding between the college and the pro game and as I wrote in the piece as people have said you know Munkin is not an air raid guy he's not from that tree he, it just gets kind of attached to him I think because of the Oklahoma State job um, that he was there for a right. couple years but what what kind of offense was that what were some tendencies that you thought were really good yeah I mean definitely uh, aggressive a lot of downfield passing, a lot of testing defenses deep, um, had good speed with Deshaun Jackson, um, would throw deep early and often. I mean, I think they had 75-yard touchdown early the first either the first game or the first home game hmm. in 18, right off the bat. Like, I think they had two 75-yard touchdowns in one game. Um, and big play throws downfield weren't really Jameis's strength his first couple of years here. Um, and he's gotten a lot better in the last two years about it. But just aggressive downfield – um, used his tight ends well. I mean, he had two tight ends that that really played well in that offense. O.J. Howard and Cam Bray. I think they combined for 11 touchdowns, I want to say, in 18, um, which is a lot for an NFL offense. Um, you know, we'll use uh, tight ends split out. They, they, he called it a hybrid, like a Y position where you're kind of a tight end slash receiver that puts you in mismatches with linebackers and safeties. Um, so we'll, we'll take like a... What in the NFL is like a, you know, like a 6'4", 240 guy that's either a fast tight end or a big receiver and and use them in a variety of ways. Like, I don't think Bruce Arians, as much as he's a great offensive coach, he didn't use the tight ends really, given the exact same personnel, nearly as creatively or as effectively as as Cutter and Munkin did. Um, just like using the tight ends. Didn't throw to the backs a ton. Didn't screen a ton screen to his receivers a lot. They had a tunnel screen that worked really well. Um, but yeah, just imaginative. They, it's funny They I remember we don't talk about it as much cause it didn't work, but they had a play against Atlanta, um, where they needed a touchdown to score and it got to be a, a final play, which is almost always in the NFL, a, a hail Mary situation where you just, you know, put three on one side and put one on the other and you heave it, you know, to the front of the end zone. And, Cutter and Munkin did the exact opposite. I think it was a Munkin call in that Munkin lined up again, split three right, and I think one left, and then ran a QB draw, which is crazy, especially with somebody who, like Winston, isn't necessarily the most fleet of foot as Mm -hmm. quarterbacks go. And it was like well-orchestrated, ran the ball up the middle, 
had a set first audible where, or lateral where he shifted it to a receiver. And I want to say uh, I'm blanking on when they started. It was like normal Hail Mary depth where he was maybe 40 yards out. And they got inside the 10 and were a botched lateral away from scoring a touchdown and beating them on this ridiculous sandlot out of nowhere play. It's like they, the last lateral kind of went – Deshaun was in a position to get it and make a play to get in the end zone. And the last lateral went behind Deshaun, and it the play died. But like I said, it was a Stanford band crazy four lateral, just nonsense play that almost worked and would have been all over play of the week in the NFL if they had one more executed lateral. Yeah, the, the picture again that emerges of him everywhere is, is kind of he he takes chances. He's aggressive, and yeah. he you know that kind of is in Georgia's wheelhouse right now because they Georgia's offense in 2019 if you look at it statistically and if you little if you kind of break it down it actually wasn't that bad except they just didn't have explosive plays they tried some downfield right. shots but couldn't pull them off a lot of the times but a lot of times they didn't try enough and you know it, it sounds nice let hey try and stretch the defense so throw some long balls even if it doesn't work well the defense isn't going to really react to that if you don't start hitting on them especially when what you have is a good run game and that's what Georgia had in 2019 or should have had and so other teams weren't respecting from in the passing game because the receivers so it's also not Greg just a matter of trying long shots but being able to and what you were saying is the Bucks had Deshaun Jackson they had James Winston but I, I guess a lot of it also is just having an offense where that's part of it Right where it, it's not like, hey, we you normally are a running and short passing team, but let's throw some long passes in there just to you know try and stretch the defense, quote unquote. No, you have to be an offense where part of your your core is throwing deep to begin with and being a a pass to set up the run kind of thing, which is what we saw with LSU and what we saw with the Kansas City Chiefs, who hello won the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, and, and is that kind of what Munkin is? Is he's not so much yeah. air raid as it's it's like, look, the pass can set up the run. Yeah, he. Um, it's funny, and I mean, obviously, Arians came here, and there was a lot of talk about uh, no risk it, no biscuit, and, and offensive aggressiveness, and going downfield more. And I felt like that wasn't a huge dramatic shift from what we had here with Munkin and with Cutter. Um, very downfield minded, very speed minded at all times. And it was needed that, like, I always felt like those two were very much on the same page and that, like, when they shifted, everyone talks about, oh, Jameis Winston had, you know, first he had Lovey as head coach and then Dirk and, and then Dirk was the OC. And, like, I felt like he had very much the same offense. Like, Munkin and Cutter had worked together in Jacksonville, had very much the same principles to where there was a big thing as, as to who would call plays in 18 because Cutter had been an offensive play caller for his entire coaching career, had never – yielded play calling to anyone so it was really a big thing that he turned it over to Todd and trusted Todd Monk and I think he felt like that gave him more uh time not only within the week but during the game if you're not looking down at a play sheet every play you, you can be more aware of what's going on if you need to talk to your defense mm -hmm. while the offense is on the field you can't do that if you're calling plays so it was a I think it was a move of convenience but I, I don't think he would have done it unless he had supreme confidence in what Todd could do to not only execute the same offense, but maybe do it better because um, they obviously had better success with that. And I think 
for me, like I said, it was explosiveness is a big word. Like Cutter used the word explosives constantly, and they actually had their own math. It's like, you know, the NFL doesn't really have a set language for explosives. And like Cutter would have this very specific explosives were like a currency and that he would say, yeah, we had nine explosives, only six in the run or six in the pass game on Sunday. And it was like a run of 10 yards or more or a pass of 16 yards or more. And it had very specific requirements, but there are things that they had found out. I mean, like you'd say, you know, what went wrong on Sunday? And he's like, well, gosh, we had a, you know, 11, five edge and explosives. You would think we would have won the game. And talked about that the same way you talk about like turnovers or any of these, you know, stats that we normally point to as correlating to winning and losing. So he was very much someone who believed if you won the explosives game, um, if you generated more big plays, that was a huge part of winning the game. And, and right. like I said, Munkin used the same language, had the same strong beliefs as that being a central part of, of offensive success and winning football. And like I said, I think it was a central part of why Georgia's offense struggled in 2019 right. yeah. because when you, you you know, you you may have a good run game and you may have a very accurate quarterback, which is what Jake Fromm is, but when you're going down the field moving the sticks, moving the sticks, moving the sticks, that enhances the chances for something to go wrong. And that gives the defense a chance to be the classic bend but don't break. And then Rodrigo Blankenship is coming out to try another field goal. Whereas with an explosive play, hey, there you go. You're done. You got all 50, 60, 70 yards in one foul swoop. Um, And by explosives, we don't always mean 40 to 50 yards. Georgia, it was amazing. when, When you go to CFB stats, and I think I pointed this out at some point, but when you go to CFB stats and 10 yards or longer, uh, let me pull it up here. Long scrimmage plays. This past year, Georgia was actually 18th in the country with 217 plays of 10 yards or longer, which is pretty good. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was like fourth in the SEC after LSU, Alabama, and no, third in the SEC. So, you know, respectable. Yeah. Click over to 20 yards. Plays of 20 yards or longer, and you keep scrolling down, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Georgia fell all the way to 70th. So Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that that's what 70 are like out of the power five. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that's something we're going to be hearing at Georgia a lot this year is about explosives. And, and now you don't want to then give up that ability to move the sticks. But I think it does speak to where, where offense is going now – and I think that's in the NFL and in college, is that, uh, again, look at the Super Bowl. Look at what the Chiefs did. Um, they're backed up. The most important play of the Super Bowl, I think, was when it was – so they're trailing 20 to 10, third and 15 from, yep. I, I don't know, around the 40. But you know which play I'm talking about. Where, right, 44 uh, yards. Yeah, he just he gets wide open, and the receiver actually kind of has to come back to get it. But right. it turns out yeah. Mahomes threw it perfectly in the right spot because if he had thrown it a little further then the defense would have had a chance to make a play but yeah Yeah. that that play you know bailed him out and you need plays like that to bail you out and so that's where that's where offense is going let let me let me flip this a little bit greg i know you didn't cover him enough to get the full you know range of it but if there is a if if there are criticisms of todd munkin as a play caller as an offensive coordinator what what would you say? What what was a weakness that came out or that you had heard about before or, or were there any? 
Yeah, the, the, the two things that he struggled with and where they were not an elite NFL offense were turnovers in red zone. And he would tell you that. And that was a, a constant source of frustration. And it's always tough for a coach when you have something that you know is a weak spot and over the course of a year you don't make the progress you want to. So turnovers, again, I think you have an aggressive offense and you have a fairly carefree thrower in Jameis Winston. It's going to And fits too, don't get me wrong. Those two are both high touchdown, high interception passers. So the two of them, I, I forget what they combined for last year, but it was probably maybe 25 interceptions in 18, I should say. So with Munkin, you'd have him say, you know, you'd, you'd have these play games where he had gaudy yards. You'd have 500 yards and 10 points or something, like unimaginable where you just can't pile up that many yards and not score 30 points. So for him, you'd have these games where, again, it's maybe the number one offense in the NFL from a passing yards per game standpoint, but – until you got that red zone offense up to like 65% touchdowns, it was a frustration for him because they'd get there and then you get in a tighter amount of space, especially without a reliable run game sometimes, that's where the drives just stall. And then not only are you now settling for field goals, but sometimes you have unreliable kickers to where you're settling for missed field goals and it exacerbates the problem. So I do think with Munkin, there was an efficiency concern when it came to red zone and, and coming away with seven more often. And it helps if you can, if you're getting a 75 yard touchdown, a 60 yard touchdown, a 45 yard touchdown, then it, it masks a lot of those red zone concerns. But if you're, if you're only getting whatever 45 or 52% touchdowns in the red zone, that, that stacks up. Um, it was actually funny that things got worse. It's like there was one game midway through 18 where cutter took the play calling back. And didn't really tell us, so it was kind of a weird thing that he would take back. And I think it was just Cutter trying to do something to spark the team as much as the offense. And it got worse. It was like they had a game against the Redskins, and it was like 500 yards of offense and three points. Like almost unprecedented in NFL history to have that many yards and have so few points to show for it. And it was just dying in the red zone, missing on fourth downs in the red zone, missed field goals. Um, so, yeah, like I said, what I felt like Munkin left with a frustration was just that they weren't a crisper offense closer to the end zone. And that's something that, yeah, Georgia last year was not good in the red zone. Um, they were tied for sixth nationally. This is another one of those where you you got to look <laughs> at what you got to look a little further than the initial stat. They were tied for six right. nationally in score percentage in the red zone because they had Rodrigo Blankenship. Um, you go right. to touchdown percentage, yeah. they careened way down to 45th. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of that was because, again, their run game, where move the sticks, move the sticks, move the sticks, but then you get bogged down because eventually the other team figures out how to stop it, especially when they know you're going to the run game. Um, and so, yeah, that's I guess that's something to watch with Munkin. He doesn't come in and automatically fix that via his offense, unless... The mentality of being more open means that when you get to the red zone, that's when you go to the run game more. And, and Georgia has Zamir White, uh, James Cook, Kenny McIntosh, Kendall Milton to to go to at that point in a, in a good line, you'd think. So I guess if you're an optimistic Georgia fan, you say that that helps it. If you're a 
pessimistic Georgia fan, which there are more of those than the optimistic ones, um, they would say, okay, red zone. I guess that will be our failing in 2020. Right. Well, and it's, I'll tell you, there will be an awareness of it. There will be a, a stress on doing well there. Whether you can pull it off in a game or not remains to be seen. Um, last thing I had, and then just kind of we'll close up, I guess, with your general thoughts. But it, And this is a very small thing because we can get in and out of it. The thing I hear from people is, well, you know, how long will Munkin be there? Um, and I say, you know, if he's here one year and, and gets a head coaching job somewhere um, or go back goes back to the NFL as a coordinator, probably means he did well. So, you know, who cares? Um, but it, 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 he's a he's a fascinating guy, Greg, when you look at him because he had a head coaching job at Southern Miss. They're on the upswing, but then he goes back to the NFL as a coordinator. But he also wasn't he getting head coaching looks. Like, yeah, he got, I mean, even his after trajectory this time of yeah, year ago yeah, go ahead. was outstanding in that he, even though he was on a staff that got fired, um, interviewed for three head coaching jobs like Jets, Brown, I think even Browns. I think there were three head coaching jobs he, he took. And, and in taking the Cleveland job, if you remember where Cleveland was at the end of last year, it was like, wow, that Baker Mayfield can't do anything wrong. Had a great rookie year. Right. They'll be a playoff team and he'll probably be in really good position to be a head coach a year from now. And and obviously things didn't go the way it was expected on a lot of levels in Cleveland. And I think that was something that was a big source of, of frustration for Munkin. I think that's something he was fairly um, vocal about on and off the record with people up there to where um, it, it got old in a hurry. I think he went from... Yeah. With Dirk, it was very familiar. People he knew exactly what to expect around him as a coaching staff to go into Freddie Kitchens and not necessarily knowing Freddie, not necessarily knowing the other offensive coaches and and even players, and getting tired of, of why things didn't work the way they did. Um, I think you know of all the coaching hires last year, Kitchens is probably the the most glaring miss of that, and he just got kind of got caught up in that. So. It got to that thing where there were like eight NFL OC jobs open, and I was trying to figure out, like, would Munkin get one of those? Um, it's like Cutter had an offensive assistant job where I wondered if he'd just go land with Cutter for a year and then bounce back to be a coordinator a year from now. So this this surprised me a little bit. I mean, Georgia, don't get me wrong, an SEC coordinator job, especially the way they're paying them these days, is is a very high-profile, natural stepping stone that gives him either – back to the college ranks as a head coach in a year or two, or, or back to the NFL, honestly, um, to where if he does well there, you know, he'll be the same guy and, and still fairly young for what he is. Um, yeah, like you 53. said, if, if he's in this I mean, job for yeah. more than two years, that would be odd for me. I would be surprised if he's still there two full years from now. Yeah. And the thing is, Georgia's window is, I was on the Paul Feinbaum show the other day and I was asked yeah. about the the window thing. And, and part of that was because I was being asked about, does Georgia have a window um, entering the 2019 season? And I said, they may, it depends on Jake Fromm's decision. Um, right. And Jake Fromm ended up leaving, but you're sitting here in 2020 and saying, well, if Georgia can fix the offense, the window is just kind of continuous as in right. they, they look set on defense again in 2020 and there's a lot of reason for optimism the way they're recruiting. They're zeroing in on another number one recruiting class, number one, number two, yeah. at minimum, number three. And so they just need to figure out – they just need to get the, the developing and the coaching part of it right at the same time. And 
yeah, I mean, if, if Todd Munkin can come in here and have instant success in 2020, they they they'll, they can get back to the playoff and right win a championship, and the same could happen in 2021. And you know, we're, look, we're sitting here doing an entire podcast on an assistant coach, so yeah. it's important. You know, <laughs> he's earning 1.1 million, but he's still an assistant coach, which means he wants to be a head coach or even yeah. an NFL coordinator. Um, I, I don't know. Did you get a sense of him enough to know whether you think his heart is in one place, NFL or college? Or No, I mean, or, when he left Southern you know? Miss, I mean, he, you know, like you said, he had a great situation on the rise there. And beyond the, the natural ceiling of you being in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, outside the Power Five, you know, could have been a, a great coach. I mean, Jeff Bowers was a coach for ages there in Hattiesburg, um, had already gotten to 10-win status, you know, was in a position to be getting – you know, if you're winning Conference USA titles, um, that lends itself to, I mean, a, a lot of Power 5 head coaching jobs came from those ranks, basically. So I was impressed to see him leave to come to, and I mean, I think he was paid well as an NFL offensive coordinator, too, but I, I felt like it spoke to how much value he placed on familiarity and working with people that he liked to work with in systems he liked to work with. Um and again, I think you saw that in Cleveland a little bit with the opposite there. So now he's to the point where he's very soon going to be a point where kind of like in Southern Miss, he can build his own staff. He can go somewhere and, and be a head coach and have his own staff and surround himself with with the people he likes to be around. It's just making sure you find the right situation to do that in. Um, and like I said, he was close to landing one of those jobs. He's a guy where, you know, once you get to the interview, um, he's going to come off as confident, as uh Almost cocky if you, if you talk to Munkin. I mean, Munkin has a lot of confidence, not even in himself, yeah. but in the people that he surrounds himself with. If if you talk about another receiver, he's going to say, well, I, I don't really know that he does that much that Mike Evans can't do. You know, and he's going to defend the coaches around him. When Cutter was, you know, all but completely known to be fired, he was standing up for Dirk Cutter and saying, This guy's a great coach. I love working with him. And like present tense, stand up for guys around him, just very loyal. And confident in his own evaluation skills from what uh, uh, Bill McGillis, his AD at Southern yeah. Miss, was telling me about with, uh, you know, he found Nick Mullins. Yeah. Um, he found uh, Mike Thomas, another Michael Thomas. But, uh, you know, he, he, he will, and he doesn't have to do that at Southern Miss. But right. maybe during his time at Georgia, however long it is, a year or two, even longer, he'll find somebody and say, yeah. I know that we're recruiting, it seems, only five stars, but that guy can play. Right. Um, and he'll he'll trust in that. One one last thing, Greg. Um, we haven't heard yet, and maybe it hasn't been decided, whether he's going to be coaching quarterbacks or receivers or oh, possibly okay. neither, yeah. floating. I don't know. Um, I've heard that you know, multiple people have told me they think he's a receivers coach at heart. Right. But he's got a lot of experience coaching quarterbacks. I mean, Brandon Whedon loved him. Um even though he was a receivers coach, said both him and Ryan Fitzpatrick used the quote of he sees the field through the eyes of a quarterback. Do you have any feel for whether it matters, whether he's coaching quarterbacks or receivers or, or floating around? No, I mean, I think if you're a play caller, it definitely helps to be in the room with the quarterbacks just because you can – otherwise you're Which kind will of always not one. in one yeah. room. Um, so, like, he wasn't a play caller in Cleveland, which is a weird thing for me, but – was very home, very at home as a receivers coach. Um, he was the receivers coach and OC in Tampa, which again, it, I mean, they had a separate quarterbacks coach 
in addition to an offensive coordinator and an offensive minded head coach. So that sometimes you get that like too many chefs in the kitchen kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But handled that well. And then, like I said, third year, they brought in a receivers coach just to take away the positional responsibility off his plate and let him be a roving OC who could go in any room, could go in the backs, can go with the O-line, can sit in with the quarterbacks and be wherever he wants to be that week or that day. And I think he appreciated the freedom of that. So um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he were untethered as an OC and didn't have a positional responsibility. It gets tricky in colleges because you only have uh, whatever it is, you have a finite amount of assistance, and it's hard to you have to either like double up and have the tight ends in the O line room or something like that sometimes. But no, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he were the receivers coach. And given how well 18 went for him, it wouldn't surprise me if he were just a standalone roving offensive coordinator. Yeah, and they'll have the flexibility to do that. I don't know again which way Kirby's going to go on it. Um, it'll depend. And, and Coley, Coley went to what AM or something like that. Yeah, he's going to AM. I'm not sure AM has announced it, but um Right. You know, he, but he's not moved. It's like there's around. one less Right. Yeah, yeah. So he has an opening, Kirby does. And I don't know if he's gonna go hire a special teams coordinator, which that's a job that is technically open right now. Cause this right. all started because Scott Fountain left as Georgia's okay. special teams coordinator to go to um Arkansas with Sam Pittman that opened a spot so Kirby then is able to go get Todd Munkin and pretend at least for the moment that James Coley is going to stay on staff um but then James Coley understandably says well you know look I I don't want to be around anymore right I'm getting getting demoted I'll go somewhere else not as play caller but I need a fresh start so that leaves an opening so yeah, if if he hires a uh, special teams coordinator, then Munkin can just be the quarterbacks coach. But if he decides he wants to go hire somebody who will be a really good quarterbacks coach, who's a good recruiter, they could promote a guy. They, they going back to the well at Southern Miss, by the way. I don't know if you saw this, Greg, but they hired the Southern Miss offensive coordinator, a guy by the name of Buster Faulkner, to come here as a quality control assistant. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's that's the power of the difference between you know, high-end job like Georgia and Southern Miss at this point. Right. Um, But they, so they could move this guy, Buster Faulkner, to quarterback coach, or they could keep him off the field, go hire somebody. And yeah, Munkin could float around. That's what Jim Chaney did at Tennessee this past year. Um, It, it just, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. But I think what a lot of people are watching, Greg, is is the development of the quarterback position, because there's this perception that Jake Fromm didn't develop well over the last year maybe two years and you know people are kind of blaming James Coley and and what happened when he got taken away from Jim Cheney's tutelage et cetera et cetera whether that's fair or not uh we'll see what what direction they go here with this job yeah I'm intrigued to see what's there SEC East to me is always twice as easy a path to Atlanta as the West is and I mean if they stay ahead of Florida um you know, there's a really easy path to, you know, whatever it is, seven and one and being in Atlanta, where now you're one win away from being in the playoff. Uh, so, no, I'm excited for them and curious to see how, like I said, Munkin was a lot of fun to watch, a lot of fun to cover. Uh, I'll be intrigued to see how, how well it translates to a new staff and a new offense there at Georgia. Greg, you've been really accommodating with your time, really insightful. Um, all the stuff that we were talking about just back and forth, uh, the last couple weeks and when this yeah. all was happening. I, I'm glad you were able to share it uh, with your, with the readers as well. Um, I'd say come on again, but 
I'm not sure our paths will cross in this way, but eventually, at some point, we will. It's been fun. You never know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's you know it's the benefit of working at a place where we've got beat writers all over the place and and experts all over the places. We're able to do something like this. No, Bucks will draft a, a Georgia lineman or something. I'll come back and get you. Well, yeah, no, that that's what I'd like to do. We we'll go the other way. Right. There is is I'm I'm open. I think that's what we ought to do. Maybe we ought to take this off the air, but um, I think that's what we ought to do from now on is like, like a few years ago when Chicago drafted Roquan Smith, I wrote up a very quick thing for the Chicago site on what kind of player Roquan Smith is. Well, maybe they should have me on the show. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is, yeah. I mean, this, I mean, yeah. a year ago we had this, but I mean, to have people in every, I mean, it's amazing that like when you're covering, we're getting a little off the beaten path here, but, but as a tangent, like when you're covering oh, these high school, the college all-star games. Uh, Senior Bowl and Shrine Game. It's it's so cool as a draft guy and an NFL writer because you're like, oh, this guy be a good story. And like our college staff like wrote the daylights out of him twice in college. Here's a guy I barely had heard of, and there's two amazing 2,500 word stories on who he is, and I just didn't know it because he was playing, you know, at, at Cal or something like that on the other side of the country. So it's really cool in that no matter where the team goes with these draft picks, there's a good chance there's somebody who knows them well, has already written their their story in a great way. It's a huge help because you feel like you're not going in blind with anybody anymore. Not only that, but I think development-wise, I think the more you watch the NFL, I think, and, and I may maybe say this more as watching the Georgia guys that go pro, is there aren't as many shocks anymore as in I can't believe this guy didn't make it or I can't believe this guy made it. I mean, you have a few, you know, but – in a few in both categories, but I, I think a lot of times, again, as we get into draft season here, you're going to start to see guys' stock go up because they're combine wonders, and maybe sometimes you need to go back to the people who covered them in college to say, yeah, but when they when they were actually playing in games? Right. There's not a lot of Terrell Davises anymore. Right. Yeah. Anyway, all right, I'm going to cut it off right there because we've, we've gone too long. Greg, it sounds like you and I should do our own podcast. We'll That's right. On for a while. Um, yeah, much better chemistry than I have with Jeff Schultz. Just going <laughs> to say that. Anyway, all right, Greg, I really appreciate your time. Um, I hope everyone got a, lot of, uh, got a lot out of this. All right, man, thanks again. We'll do it again soon. Take care. We just stepped on their face with a hobnail boot and broke their nose. We just crushed their face.